Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey there. These are the last six episodes of Queer Serial, leading up to the final episodes on Stonewall's 52nd anniversary. Happy Pride! And there will be a big finale episode shortly after Pride. When it's all over, my Patreon will be the place to find new bonus episodes and special interviews. Check it all out at patreon.com slash queer serial. And finally, before we start, this podcast uses text from real homophile era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. So the show has identifying terms that may now be out of date.
It's just a half-hour walk from Crilly Court, south down Clark Street, cut through Bughouse Square and across Dearborn into a hidden alley called Tooker Place. The alley's brick wall says, Danger, with two arrows pointing down at the door, a door which says in hand-painted letters, Step high, stoop low, leave your dignity outside. The Dill Pickle Club is host to radical discussions, like who's responsible for the depression, and is monogamy a failure, and even is jazz better than opera? The labor activist who started the club as a performance space, a nightclub, and an art gallery welcomes intellectuals of all backgrounds, working class professors, sex workers, socialites, bohemian writers of all backgrounds come and think freely. Anarchist Emma Goldman can stand up and pose the question, do perverts menace society? And she can make her case. Afterward, the crowd votes yay or nay, typically siding with points of view that are considered radical in the early 1900s. Late at night, a guest of the Dill Pickle can quietly slip out, down the alley, across Dearborn, and back into Bughouse Square. There, a queer man can cruise the park in the dim light of the gas lamps. By day, the park was full of free thinkers who later went to drink at the Pickle. In the park, they'd speak to the passersby about communism and gender and sexuality. It's an open space for soapboxing, welcoming to community discussion. At night, queers cruise Bughouse Square. And if they don't find someone there, they might head east toward Michigan Avenue, where the old water tower still stands, pick up a sex worker and find a rooming house nearby, or go up to the Lincoln Baths. There are plenty of options for queer folks around this Chicago neighborhood called Tower Town. Magnus Hirschfeld noted the many bathhouses where queer people gather in late 19th century Chicago. Others have documented upper-class queer cruising spaces, like the Chicago Athletic Club. But queers of all classes can be found in even the dirtiest of cruising grounds. An 1879 anonymous letter to the Chicago Tribune, simply signed from decency, tips off an editor that, below the Randolph Street Bridge, where the bank meets the water of the Chicago River, there's a cave-like space where men are meeting at night. A reporter from the Daily Inter-Ocean investigates. He arrives at the bridge one night and asks the attendant to take him down where the men meet. The attendant lights a lantern and takes him down the stairs. The reporter informs his readers that he's aware many major cities all over the world have this filth in men's clothing whose very touch would contaminate one who came in contact with them. But he wants to see the local trade for himself, to witness, in his words, how low men will sink. The attendant and the reporter turn a corner at the bottom of the stairs, and the lantern light lands on the gathering men. Some scatter, running past the reporter and back up the stairs. The attendant says the men meet here almost nightly from 9 to 11 o'clock. One regular is a doctor, he says, a sleek-looking fellow with white vest and silk hat. The reporter describes the regular as a soft-voiced, well-to-do dandy with a cane, 
out looking for trade. And so begins rugged Chicago's fascination with the late 19th century effeminate fop. The 1892 World's Fair brings a new wave of queer culture to town. While 20 million people in Chicago see things never imagined, electricity, the Ferris wheel, zippers, and Fatima, a belly dancer so lewd that police arrest her almost daily. Fatima is considered a cross-dresser, born male, performing a dance the police call erotic imagery calculated to arouse male members of the audience so effectively that they might succumb to her queer advances. Every day, she leaves the jailhouse and returns to her show. Up the street on Michigan and Monroe, Eugen Sandow performs his erotic weightlifting act at Ziegfeld's Trocadero Music Hall. Eugen's lover, Martinus Savitking, plays piano. Papers report on the men as bosom friends, with Martinus practicing at his piano, stripped to the waist, while Eugen is beside him, working his muscles. He is fond of the music, and Savitking likes to see Sandow's muscles work. In the years before this act, Sandow sold photos of himself in hunky, gladiatorial poses for men who were into what they called physical culture. In order to quell the queer rumors about Sandow, Florence Ziegfeld spreads more rumors about affairs with women. And he announces that women who donate $300 or more to charity may come to the dressing room after the show to stroke Sandow's muscles. Many men are allowed in for free, but the female charity donors are the only ones quoted in the press. Of course, Eugen Sandow is never arrested hustling this type of sex work, male cisgender sex work, unlike Fatima's. Sandow will eventually go on to publish a bodybuilding magazine called Physical Culture, inspiring a future generation of beefcake publications right here in Chicago. When you've got Florence Ziegfeld money behind you, and when you're a cis man rather than a trans woman, the possibilities are endless. We've talked a lot about graft on this show. Houses of vice paying protection money to people in power so police don't shut them down. Graft is a specialty in Chicago. First Ward Alderman, by the nicknames Hinky Dink Mike Kenna and Bathhouse John Coughlin, they make a ton of cash in graft. These aldermen have been putting on their first ward ball since New Year's Eve, 1896. A massive reception to raise campaign funds and a clever disguise for payoff money. There's lots of payoff money to be made in their ward, especially from the Southside Levee, a red light district of about four blocks which are home to dozens of brothels, saloons, and opium dens. Business is booming. It's the wealthiest neighborhood in Chicago, and protection money to their aldermen is absolutely necessary for them to stay in business. Guests who pay to attend the aldermen's big masquerade ball are bordello madams, gambling ringleaders, pimps, and other business owners who want their establishments protected. 
They buy tickets, hundreds of tickets, and hand them out to their clients and employees. Even First Ward policemen are required to buy tickets at the steep price of $10 if they want to keep their jobs. The event quickly becomes so huge that it moves up the road to the Coliseum. The aldermen running the show apparently earn about $50,000 per ball every year. In 1907, one reporter covering the event writes, If a great disaster had befallen the Coliseum last night, there would not have been a second-story worker, a dip or plug ugly, porch climber, dope fiend, or scarlet woman remaining in Chicago. Female impersonators, trans people, and queer folks in general are happy to buy tickets to a guaranteed fun night out in drag, a huge queer party set to current hits played by an orchestra, plenty of alcohol, and maybe even cruising for clients. It's the event of the year. And they have no idea that these parties will inspire their queer descendants and their growing movement. At the turn of the century, Newspaper editorials and reformer groups, like the Chicago Law and Order League, begin calling on police to arrest troops of female impersonators in amusement parks and venues in the Loop. Groups like Duncan Clark's Burlesque Show, a traveling group advertised as the hottest show on earth. The subsequent arrests are great publicity for the show. After the curtain, their performers also go backstage and secure some trade. Despite Chicago's 1851 law against cross-dressing, Clark's performers in Chicago aren't charged with impersonating women because they're so financially successful that they hire the best lawyers. So, instead, social reformers decide to go after the bare bronze beauty, Bertha Falk, another White City amusement park performer, a cisgender woman who dances in a waistband, veil, and a string of beads. The reformers are disappointed to find that, in less than 20 minutes, the all-male jury declares Bertha Falk morally elevating and decent in every sense of the word. The determined reformers, bent on enforcing social hygiene, eventually set their sights on the first ward balls. The two aldermen in charge of the balls are so powerful that they openly laugh about the reformers in the papers. They possibly get a bit too arrogant about it and invite ministers to the ball in 1907 who are disgusted by the event. The ministers call on the police to shut down the balls, describing them as debauch, which remind one of pagan Rome in her most degenerate days. The Tribune joins in, promising to print the names and photos of men who attend next year. But the night before the 1908 ball, a bomb is set off near the Coliseum. A police inspector tells the paper that reformers of a certain type have turned heaven and earth in their efforts to prevent the ball being held. The aldermen still throw their ball, but when letters come in threatening the 1909 event with more bombs, the aldermen decide they have to compromise. They ban sex workers and female impersonators. The Tribune announces, Coughlin yields, orgy called off. The ball goes on, and the following year the rule is dropped, and sex workers and drag performers are allowed back into the party, now bigger than ever. 
people in Bronzeville, just south of the levee, began hosting many of their own queer masquerade balls, giving out prizes for the best female and best male impersonators. Queer parties are thriving all over this town. Determined to throw his ball for the queens and never back down, one of the first ward aldermen tells a reporter, Chicago ain't no sissy town. Previously, the Madison Society has its headquarters in San Francisco and offices in Chicago. Chicago. Al signs as vice president, and Henry Gerber signs as secretary. Yes, they sign their real names. Strange sex cult exposed. Civic virtue triumphs again. Upon taking office as Chicago's police commissioner several months ago, Orlando Wilson struck a mighty blow against crime and vice in Cook County by outlawing bingo. But when Mattachine Publications director Hal Call visits Chicago that summer, he finds their chapter practically dormant. Shirley Willer went to Pearl Hart, a Chicago attorney. Shirley asked Pearl how to start an organization to help homosexuals. You don't. It's too dangerous. In Chicago, Miss Major is going to the balls, dressing up. They work all year on their gowns for the South City Ball and the Maypole Ball. But put a pin in that. On February 18th, the forces of law and order took another giant step by raiding one of the city's more sedate gay bars and arresting more than 50 women plus the bartender. Of course, they didn't have any evidence or anything, but that was corruption in Chicago. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America. From the beginning to Stonewall. Let me tell you from experience. It does not pay to do anything for them. I once lost a good job in trying to bring them together. Henry Gerber will write years after his 1925 arrest in Chicago. He started the first organization for homosexuals in the United States, having seen the vast queer underground in Berlin and in Chicago. Shortly after arriving in Chicago, Gerber gets to know queer folks in Tower Town, a Chicago neighborhood you might know as Streeterville by River North. Gerber enjoys cruising Bughouse Square, but he also socializes by attending events like the literary lectures hosted by the Seven Arts Club in hotels, garages, and an old stable. The lectures are often a cover for secret drag shows. There are many groups like these all over Tower Town, great meetings for entrance to the queer underground. The neighborhood is so dense with queers because of the cheap rent. The run-down studios with candle wax crusted to the windowsills are packed with queers, and living in this big, busy town makes anonymity easy. You can slip into a peg house, a male brothel, or you can get into drag for a show. No one back home would ever know. Anarchist Ben Reitman writes... In Bohemia, the homos can speak their own language. Two male homos will meet a radical and say, you know, this is my wife, Elle. Or, I brought Kitty along, she is looking for trade. I have said to a casual visitor to the Dill Pickle when introducing a group of male homos, I want you to meet these boys. They are a couple of the best-known Michigan Avenue bitches in town. 
and everybody smiled. Tower Town even has, of course, its own Ye Black Cat, and the Blue Fish, the Green Lantern, the Wind Blew In, the Green Mask In stages an act billed as a hermaphrodite violinist, and also a little Mexican fairy called Theta Barra, as well as drag stars Bert Savoy and Julian Eltinge, who you might remember from the San Francisco History episode last season. Out on Michigan Avenue, sex workers walk. There's marijuana in the air, and lodging down at the YMCA. Just a few bucks can get you pretty far in Tower Town. Tower Town has everything a young queer might need. The neighborhood motto? Gin, din, and sin for a fin. A fin is a $5 bill. Queer soldiers flood the area in 1917 when the U.S. joins the Great War. Military bases near Chicago give young men easy access to Tower Town's queer tourism. Settling into his bustling new home, Bavarian immigrant Henry Gerber has become quite happy in Tower Town. He's in a long-term relationship with a young man, and they have a busy social calendar. But it doesn't take long for Henry's sister to figure out what's going on. She realizes that her brother is queer and has him committed to an asylum. She feels it's her duty to do so. The Vice Commission of Chicago recently announced The Social Evil in Chicago, a study of existing conditions. The commission estimates about 20,000 queers in Chicago and describes Tower Town and the Levy as whole groups of colonies of these men who are sex perverts. The greatest criticism is due the citizens of Chicago, first, for the constant evasion of the problem, second, for their ignorance and indifference to the situation, and third, for their lack of united effort in demanding a change in the intolerable conditions as they now exist. Two years go by in that hospital. In 1919, Henry Gerber is given a choice. Either go to prison as an enemy alien, because he's an immigrant, or enlist in the war and prove your patriotism for America. He enlists, and he's sent to Germany, his former home. But as an openly queer adult, his German experience is very different this time around. He sees a liberal queer culture there, and Dr. Hirschfeld's bold research into queerness, proving that we're not sick. Like so many activists after Henry, he was called sick and yet saw the proof that it wasn't true. So, he's inspired to start his Organization for Homosexuals when he returns to Chicago, the first organization in America for homosexuals to demand their rights. Check out the very first episode of this podcast for that full story. While Tower Town continues to thrive, and the police target the brothels of the levee and shut them all down, the south side neighborhood of Bronzeville fills with black migrants from the south. These new Chicagoans bring jazz to the city. People like Tony Jackson. Jackson leaves New Orleans for Chicago's sexual freedom. He's queer, 
and plays piano all over Bronzeville, becoming so famous for his musical skills that other pianists begin dressing like him in a pearl gray derby, checkered vest, ascot tie with a diamond stick pen. It's performers like Tony Jackson that make Bronzeville's State Street Strip between 26th and 39th famous as The Stroll. Ma Rainey's Shave 'em Dry Blues even has lyrics about The Stroll. Going downtown to spread the news, State Street women wearing brogan shoes. Men's shoes. The State Street Stroll is a primarily black strip of booming businesses, jazz clubs and cafes that draw in queer nightlife personalities. While Tower Town is mostly white, Bronzeville clubs welcome everyone of any race and any sexuality, so much so that the clubs become called Black and Tans. In the same black and tans that Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway perform in, many legendary drag queens also sing for queer audiences late into the night. Peaches Browning, Jean LaRue, Sepia Joan Crawford, and the legendary Sepia Gloria Swanson, just to name a few. They earn huge groups of fans that follow them from club to club through Chicago. Shea Coulee will follow in their footsteps. Sepia Mae West also records a song about the stroll, where she performs at the Cabin Inn. If you want to have a real good time, clean place to dance and dine, may produce and show that friend, Tinsley with his red hot band. You hear hot nuts sang by Stella, the way she croons is really mellow, waitress keeps a smile and please, bartenders mixing drinks with ease, there's Joe and Lim, they sing and dance, cute chorus girls put you in a trance, the boss and wife are very nice, and that's the place they don't have fights, there's Jimmy singing his jazz, yes, impersonators do the rest, you buy whiskey, any plan, you don't need much dough to spend, there's the best of class, brand new friends, down at the cabin in, oh yeah, down at the cabin in. No longer fops cruising under the bridges, Chicago's pansies are in full bloom in the 1920s. Pansies are overtly feminine, often in rouge, powder, and lipstick, you know, like me. In 1929, Variety reports on about 35 queer pansy parlors opening in Chicago, saying they're run by waitresses who are lads in gals' clothing, who won't open for business in the morning until they've spent at least two hours adjusting the drapes just so. 
When the 1933 World's Fair begins in Chicago, tour guides market Tower Town as Little Paris, and Chicago's queer nightlife has a new steady stream of tourist bucks as the pansy craze reaches her peak. University of Chicago sociology professor Ernest Burgess attends some of these 1930s balls and bars, recording queer history that might have been lost otherwise. He assigns his students to visit nightclubs, too, and study these queer people. His notes show a visit to the bathroom with the queens, who put up their dresses to urinate. One of his students writes from the Ballyhoo Café, at 1942 North Halstead Street at 11.30 p.m. on September 24th, 1933. 75 were queer fellows and 25 queer girls. The hostess, dressed in masculine style, was queer, as well as the MC. The student asks one of the girls to dance, and she explains that they, queer people, can't stand the jam people. Jam is code for straight. The student returns to the Ballyhoo two months later. He writes, Mac, the master of ceremonies and also a female impersonator, who is about six foot three inches tall and very slim in build, gave his number. Dressed in female costume, he impersonated a woman and walked gracefully about the room making wisecracks. Another student records their observations at a Southside cabaret, seeming a bit more bewildered by it all. Through blue cigarette smoke, you can make out the outlines of crowded tables. Before long, the orchestra strikes up a tune, and the master of ceremonies appears on the stage. This person is a huge mulatto with wide shoulders and narrow hips. It is a lascivious creature that strikes the normal as extremely repulsive. With a deep, husky voice, it begins to sing a wild song, And as the tempo increases, the stage rapidly fills with a remarkable collection of sexual indeterminates. Each is dressed in a long formal, and each has the same peculiar physical appearance. After the floor show, the homos dance together in all sorts of fantastic routines. They all act far more feminine than a normal girl, carrying filmy handkerchiefs which they draw out of their sleeves and flutter around. They talk and joke about girdles and brassiers, which seem to be the source of most of their humor. (sighs) I miss the bars. Police tend to overlook the vice of the early 1930s in Chicago because the city is desperate for money during the Depression. But as soon as the World's Fair is over on Halloween 1934, Mayor Kelly cracks down on queer cabarets and bathhouses all over the city. Even though pansies have quickly become popular in books, plays, and films, and the pansy craze has been hot for over a decade, remember, 
queer popularity in the mainstream can always vanish as quickly as it began. The law is laid back down on queers so effectively that Variety then reports that years after fan dancers, Venuses on Half Shell, World's Fair strippers, and General Hacha, fan dancers are now doing their routines in red flannel underwear. And, as always, with affordable queer neighborhoods packed with nightlife, businesses try to cater to a broader, more heteronormative clientele, rent rises, and the queers are pushed somewhere else. Looking at you, Boys Town. Tower Town's bright lights begin to dim. The mob moves in to run the remaining queer spaces, saying they're doing this to protect queer spaces from cops. The mob then demands tons of protection money. But even the dill pickle closes in 1934 as it becomes a dangerous tourist trap under Al Capone's thumb. The next year, police slap a padlock on the ballyhoo. The more discreet vice and queerness have to become, the more dangerous it is. Langston Hughes writes to a friend in 1936, Chicago is still a savage and dangerous city, and almost everybody seems to have been held up and robbed at least once. The only sense of queer community remaining in Chicago are the balls on Halloween and New Year's Eve, And even those are no longer safe from the CPD. Down at the Cabin Inn, cops raid a campy little gay double wedding, arresting 12 people. Seven of them are in drag. One of the guests is a gambler, Albert Finney, who was inspired by this wedding to start his own ball in the fall of 1935, for black female impersonators and their companions. It begins in a tavern basement with a 25-cent cover. They're not as big as the first ward balls, but they grow over eight years. Finney hosts them five times a year all over the South Side. And although he's killed in a gambling fight in 1943, Finney's ball continues on and becomes the major ball event of Chicago by the late 40s. The persistence of the balls is an incredible achievement as police continue to target Bronzeville black and tans. The cops say those clubs are centers for racial violence, which is not at all true. The Chicago Whip, an African-American paper, describes how wrong the police are and says black and white guests on the South Side get along together after midnight. But the cops persist. They shut down lesbian clubs, too. Coliseum drag balls are raided, queens are forced to put on pants or go to jail, reformers push a sexual psychopath bill. Cruising becomes even more discreet, down along the Gold Coast Oak Street Beach and in Jack's Turkish Baths, and still in Bughouse Square. Mexican gay men cruise Ashland Avenue, while downtown department store window dressers and ribbon clerks discreetly meet in the basement bar of the Palmer House Hotel. Lesbians searching for work secretly help each other out. One woman writes, There was a girl who worked at Bell and Howell out in Lincolnwood, and she was black and gay, and she did the interviewing. There was almost a whole production line of cameras and projectors that were nothing but gay girls. She made it her business to hire every gay girl on the South Side that she could hire. So a lot of us got in at Bell and Howell. 
By 1939, when Alfred Kinsey arrives in Chicago, the city has been pretty well cleaned up compared to the pansy years. The temperament of the whole nation has changed. After Nazis marched on Poland and war began to feel inevitable, a sense of patriotism swept the country. Fighting our enemies calls for strength in American men, and stereotypical masculinity becomes expected of them, and support at home is expected of women. Queer life continues further underground in Chicago. That's why Kinsey finds it so difficult to find interview subjects at first. On his first visit, he only finds a few queer men to talk to. Kinsey slowly builds trust as one man vouches for him to another, and he builds a network, eventually interviewing hundreds of queer Chicagoans. He estimates, not the 20,000 queers the Chicago Vice Commission announced, but about 300,000 queers in the city of Chicago. Kinsey exchanges frequent letters with his Chicago interview subjects, writing things like, You are a distinctive creature, and Folk as intelligent as yourself can help my thinking a great deal. And also, Your capacity for love is the thing that stands foremost in my thinking of you. Another writes back to Kinsey from jail, saying, Thank God I got only 60 days and a small fine. Kinsey pays the fine. And it's in Chicago that Kinsey, a married Indiana man, also discovers his own queer identity. Just like when the turn-of-the-century reformers tried to scare off the first ward balls, Chicagoans don't back down from the police. Ebony writes in 1953, More than 1,500 spectators milled around outside Chicago's Pershing Ballroom to get a glimpse of the bejeweled impersonators who arrived in limousines, taxis, Fords, and even by streetcar. In the 1950s, Ebony will note drag impersonations of Josephine Baker, Billie Holiday, and Lena Horne at Finney's Ball. Meanwhile, another renowned drag spectacle opens in Chicago, the Jewelbox Review. At the Regal Theater in Bronzeville, the Jewelbox show, billed as 25 Men and a Girl, captivates audiences, trying to figure out who the one woman is. The world's most unusual show. You'll have to see it to believe it. It's revealed at the end that the woman is a masculine lesbian named Stormé Delarvier, wearing a tailored suit. She'll go on to sing at the Apollo and Radio City Music Hall, and possibly attend a certain famous riot. Put a pin in that. Drag star Tony Midnight also books the Jewel Box Review, against police pressure, at the Robert Show Lounge on the South Side. The booking is just for two weeks, but the jewel box stays eight months with packed audiences. Down the street in Bronzeville, a jazz trumpeter named Tiny Davis and her partner Ruby Lucas open a club called Tiny and Ruby's Gay Spot. <laughs> Where the daddies are daddies and the fems are fems. Up on the near north side, queer folks gather at Big Lou's on Rush Street. The area is becoming so notorious for queers that 
If you tell someone you live anywhere near Dearborn and Division on the near north side, they'll probably say, Oh, Queerborn and Perversion on the queer north side? One cop reports on Big Lou's in 1952. Observation of effeminate men and mannish women in the place. Males dancing with males, females dancing with females, and undue demonstrations of intimacy between women at the bar. The cops are cracking down on mafia spaces, especially the queer bars. The Crime Commission has been set up to investigate mafia businesses, and things are quickly heating up. Mayor Kennelly appoints nine aldermen, the Big Nine, they're called, to start an emergency crime committee. Kennelly is trying to get ahead of some bad publicity. The Big Nine aldermen hire a police detective who focuses his investigation of the mob on one of the mob's bars. Big Lou's. He writes, Approximately half the persons in this tavern were perverts, this being evident from their lewd suggestive conversation and actions. Other patrons observed in the booth and at the bar while dancing in the place were also very lewd in their conduct. The place continues to be a pervert hangout to both sexes, but more emphasis being upon the lesbians. From the conduct of the female patrons, it was very evident that they were lesbians and their lovers. Big Lou herself, Lucille Kanovsky, is arrested as the police raid her bar in January 1953. She's a heavyset, butch woman. She and her girlfriend, Bernice, wear matching rings. Lucille is taken to jail with three of her patrons. Gambling, prostitution, and agents of organized crime are listed on the special investigator's report. The Tribune follows up, detailing the area, as... A segment of Chicago and a cast of characters as strange and colorful as anything ever dreamed up for a Hollywood movie. They said the women generally were attired in men's clothing and were dancing together. The men, police said, were consorting with one another. Lucille denies that her club is a resort for sex perverts but she's found guilty of being the keeper of a disorderly house. Big Lou's bar is shut down. Lucille is run out of town. And two more lesbian bars on Queerborn and Perversion follow. The Big Nine Crime Committee begins to play the press and the police off of each other. First, the nine aldermen report the so-called conditions of a bar to the police, in order to set off a raid. For example, they write to their commissioner that the Lakeshore Lounge on Rush Street is a pervert joint so packed that it was impossible to get to the bar or move around. Language filthy and obscene. Then, secondly, if officers don't clean the place out, the Big Nine aldermen threaten to leak to the press that the police won't raid this filthy bar. So, under that pressure, the police do raid, and the press writes about the bar raid anyway. The bar goes down, and the city looks clean. After years of this creative abuse by the police and the city, a Mattachine chapter forms in 1954, the first chapter outside of California. Hal Call soon finds all Chicago members are inactive, terrified of coming out, because it's only getting worse in the Midwest. Richard Daly begins a strategic targeting of queers in 1955 as he campaigns for Chicago mayor. 
He's targeting the incumbent, Kennelly. Daly capitalizes on the Tribune's longtime taunting of Mayor Kennelly for never marrying, which, of course, implies that he's homosexual. Richard Daly releases campaign ads featuring himself alongside his wife and their seven children with the headline, A Family Man for a Family City. Subtle. But the tactic works well with his overall brand, as Daly says he will end all gambling and striptease clubs. And he promises... An all-out war on crime in every form to make our neighborhood streets safe for women and children. The syndicate will be driven out of Chicago. While his message is spread by the papers to all the families in town, reporters also detail the discovery of three murdered teen boys found naked and abandoned in the woods on the northwestern outskirts of the city. Police search for the killer. The newspapers openly wonder who might have abducted these boys. A gang? A sex degenerate? The CPD hires a psychiatrist who says these boys were killed by a member of Chicago's colony of sex degenerates, even though autopsies prove no sexual behavior. The psychiatrist says police should round up every known sex offender and moron. There are several Chicago areas where persons with abnormal sex attitudes tend to congregate. Just like the story in the season one episode about the Lavender Scare, This is a Hoover-style gay sex panic catalyzed by the murder of a minor. There are so few clues to go on that the city speculates all kinds of wild possibilities. The police interview more than 300 people who are listed on the sex deviates record, including a tattoo artist and English professor, Samuel Stewart, one of Kinsey's interview subjects. Stewart isn't a suspect, since the killer had to know how to drive a car, but In order to give the officers his alibi, Stewart, a registered sex deviate, has to say where he works. He writes in his journal, If word of this gets to DePaul, it would definitely end me there. By the end of the week, Samuel Stewart is called in to speak with the dean and told his contract will not be renewed. He asks why, and the dean says, Shall we say, for outside activities? Police continue interviewing deviates all over the city, releasing names to the press as suspects and then dropping them after evidence and alibis prove the person innocent. But by then, their names have been printed in the papers and their lives are already ruined. Mayor Daly announces a $10,000 reward for anyone who can help solve the murder. Emmett Till's mother sends her condolences to the three white mothers on the north side of Chicago. The killer is never found, but queer suspects continue to be rounded up all over Chicago, interrogated, and convicted of various crimes involving what the police call perversion. Hey, Mattachinos. Yes, these are the final six episodes of Queer Serial, but don't worry. 
my Patreon will continue on after the show. I've got a slate of interviews lined up, many already recorded, and coming to you after the season is over. In the meantime, pop onto my Patreon for deeper dives into the research behind every episode. Recently, we looked at the Mattachine's phone call logs, which a lot of you loved. We looked at the Sir Pocket Lawyer book, mentioned in the show a few times. We've gone through Canadian homophile magazines, 1960s dirty gay coloring books, and the various erotic lesbian Belitis illustrations. Coming up, we'll look through Daughters of Belitis convention pamphlets and handwritten letters, letters and photos from the raid on California Hall, and some gay cruising guides. Check all that out, plus the bonus episodes and more, at patreon.com slash queer serial. Just click the link in the episode notes. Back to the show. A CPD car pulls up on a dark street to stop two young men walking to the L. One of them is a dishwasher named Frank. The other is 14-year-old ballet dancer Craig Rodwell. Yes, Craig Rodwell, who will one day participate in the sip-in at Julius in New York. The police refuse to believe that young Craig picked up the older man, Frank. The DA pressures Craig to say the dishwasher paid him for his company, But Craig refuses. Craig says he lied to Frank, told him he was older than 14. The officers recommend that Craig's mother and new stepfather send him to a reformatory school. He's just returned from Christian science school, and his mother cries, gets on her knees, and begs Chicago police not to take him away again. The officer says if she sends Craig to a private psychiatrist, he can stay and be on probation. But Frank gets five years. Craig is furious. He becomes an angry queer, he'll later say. Craig quietly waits to be old enough to do something about it. Two years later, he meets a man named Harry on the gay beach who tells him about the Mattachine Society. Harry shows Craig some publications, And Craig is fascinated that there is an organized group just as angry as he is. And they're right here in Chicago. He goes to the address listed on the publication. He looks through the building directory, wanders the halls. But there is no bustling office. It's just a mailing address. He's devastated. Craig comes to learn that many of his people are actually gathered in Greenwich Village, So, he saves his money for the next two years, when he'll finally get to put his anger to good use. Craig Rodwell isn't the only Chicago queer waiting for his turn to speak his mind. Schoolteacher Valerie Taylor gets her chance when her novel Hired Girl is published. Her debut book isn't queer, but she is, and she's paid $500, her chance to start anew. She buys two dresses, a pair of shoes, and a divorce. Valerie leaves her abusive husband and heads for Chicago with her three sons, 
where they live in a house by the beach built for the workers at the 1893 World's Fair. Valerie sees lesbian pulp books suddenly filling the shelves of drugstores, which we covered in Season 2, Episode 9. While Anne Bannon's pulp book Odd Girl Out is coming out, Valerie Taylor's own gold medal lesbian book is also published. Whisper their love. Theirs was the kind of love they dared not show the world. It sells an outrageously high number of copies, two million. Valerie Taylor's stories are often set in Chicago and feature complicated lesbian characters often discovering their gay identity, such as Erica, a young Jewish survivor of a concentration camp who moves to the Midwest U.S. and explores lesbian love. Valerie also wrote the pulp fiction book with my favorite title, A World Without Men. And she also wrote Stranger on Lesbos. The searching novel of a lonely young wife faced with the temptations of unnatural love. Write what you know. Soon she's in touch with Kinsey Institute bibliographer and librarian Jeanette Howard Foster, and Valerie's hooked up with a new job, writing for the latter. Lots of Chicago queer art is making national waves, lesbian pulp, and Chuck Renslow's Beefcake Publications. They're sending him to court with the Chicago Postal Service, much like many gay icons before him. And like the Beefcake Act of Sandow and Saviking, Chuck works alongside his lover, ballet dancer Dom Orahudos. Chuck shoots physique photography. Dom paints erotic art under the name Etienne. They were only in their early 20s when they met on the Oak Street Beach and began business ventures together. Etienne started drawing for work in 1953 when he was hired to create erotic drawings for the magazine Tomorrow's Man. That magazine was published by the man who owned the gym where Etienne worked out. Chuck and Etienne eventually buy the gym and rename it Triumph Gymnasium in order to scout for models for their other business venture, Chris Studio. It's named in part to honor trans pioneer Christine Jorgensen. In this studio space, the couple publishes their own physique magazines, Triumph, Mars, and Rawhide. The city tries to hit the brakes on Chuck and Etienne's queer creations after the postmaster finds photos featuring excessive genital delineation. It's just pictures of buff guys in posing straps. The U.S. Justice Department is called in to raid Chris Studios. Chuck is arrested in the studio on a warrant and is reported on in the papers as the Porno King. He says in court that the negatives found in his studio were just being held until they're eventually legal, and the cops laugh at the idea of mailing porn someday being legal. Chuck and his ACLU lawyer don't argue to the judge that these images are art. They simply argue that the images are not pornography. They point out nude statues around Chicago as an example. That's not pornography. The judge asks the attorney, then what is it? The attorney says, it's not for us to determine what it is. All we are saying is what it is not. The judge seems to agree. He says, is the prosecutor here saying this is pornography? Because it looks to be just a picture of the human body. Are you saying the human body is pornographic? The case is dismissed. And this outcome is supported by the recent ruling of One Magazine versus Postmaster Olison last year, featured in the finale of season one. 
The American obscenity laws are slowly eroding away. Chuck and Eddie N. then buy the Gold Coast Show Lounge, and they turn it into one of the world's first leather bars, the Gold Coast. The walls are decorated with Eddie N.'s erotic Tom of Finland-style artwork. Check them out on my Instagram at Queer Serial before those censors take the art down. In the late 70s, they'll hold a Mr. Gold Coast contest that's so successful with crowds pouring out into the streets of former Tower Town that they'll transform the event into International Mr. Leather, IML, which will run indefinitely for decades to come. Chicago is still packed with leather daddies every spring. Chuck and Eddie Yen also open the Chicago Eagle, among many other bars, and Man's Country, an enormous bathhouse where Grace Jones will perform. And so will Barry Manilow, accompanying rising star Bette Midler as she flings poppers into the crowd. True story. But that's the 70s. This is 1961, and Chicago is about to see drastic changes. Federal funds are given to the city for urban renewal, which is code for luring white people into town to live and shop and push people of color out. It's all part of Daly's plan for Chicago. Norman Mailer will say Mayor Daly is not a national politician, but a Klansman. Vice crackdowns are ordered by the mayor, and Daly pushes for state liquor law changes in order to shut down gay bars. And if he can't just shut it down, he'll have the gay bar raided, then he'll drag out the bar's license appeals process in order to keep the bar closed for months or years. Then the owner's savings will just dry up and they'll be forced to give up the business. Daly says he's doing it to fight organized crime. Gays in Chicago can't even gather in a social setting, so they're certainly not a politically strong bloc that can fight this. In order to ever get together under the reign of Bette Midler's poppers, they'll have to figure out how to fight Mayor Daley. After his re-election... News breaks that Daly actually loosened regulation on organized crime. To turn attention away from this, Daly just replaces the police superintendent. A reformer, O.W. Wilson, takes the job and takes wide authority over the police department and cracks down on the city so hard that churches aren't even allowed to raise money with bingo games. Wilson sends cops to churches to collect their bingo cards. Just imagine how he feels about queers and people of color. He also uses the press to make mountains out of every little molehill. And he's very strategic about how he orders crackdowns. Wilson says one story each day is better than three stories every third day. Wilson also loves undercover cops and so-called preventative actions by cops in black neighborhoods. Reporters are also sent along with plainclothes cops into black and gay spaces to write true crime articles. It's a strategy to glorify the crime-stopping investigators working in disguise. Police brutality in Chicago reads like film noir. Even the drag queen Tilly 
the dirty old lady of Chicago, goes into a five-year retirement as the bars get shut down all over town. Panic around every major crime leads to accusations of deviancy. Teens in high school found out to be homosexual are sent to mental institutions. Women who secretly meet at house parties carry a pair of pants to change into at the party and then they put their skirts back on before leaving. Transgender people help connect each other to doctors who will discreetly supply hormones. Ebony and Jet pull back on their coverage of the drag balls as their readers write in. Prostitutes, male homosexuals, and drug addicts arrogantly paraded along the street with the air that it was a badge of honor to be this sort of scum. I saw in your paper some months ago some men dressed as women. Please don't advertise the mess. May 3rd, 1964. More than a hundred people inside a Chicago apartment panic. They're here to celebrate a private gay wedding, and now they scramble for the exits. Running into the bedroom, a guest throws up the window and tumbles out onto the fire escape. He grabs the ladder and slides down to the alley and runs. A cop comes around the corner. Where the hell are you coming from? Did you see my little poodle? It got away from me. It ran down the alley and I'm trying to find it. Did you see it? Get the hell out of here. The cop steps up the fire escape ladder. Everyone else following the guy down the escape stairs turns around and shoves each other back into the window. Inside the apartment, one of the hosts of the wedding, dressed in Marilyn Monroe drag, mouths off to the police as they grab her and put her under arrest. The arrested are taken down the main stairs and out the front door. Marilyn Monroe sees the hot floodlights of the press, who were invited along by the police for the raid. Marilyn, wrists cuffed behind her, begins to switch down the stairs, blowing kisses to the cameras as she's shoved into the paddy wagon. The next day, the Chicago Tribune reports sex party. 58 are seized, including two juveniles. Local activists feel discouraged by raids like this. Valerie Taylor, the lesbian pulp author, is invited to speak to the dwindling local Mattachine chapter. There, she meets attorney Pearl Hart, Pearl is in her 70s and has been defending gay men arrested in bars and tea rooms for decades, earning her the unofficial title, the guardian angel of Chicago's gay community. She worked with lesbian social worker Jane Addams at Hull House. Back in the 30s, Pearl Hart defended Ladies of the Evening in the Chicago Morals Court. Before Pearl, 90% of the women were found guilty, and Pearl reversed it, helping 90% of the women go free. She later defended leftists during the Cold War and saved immigrants from deportation. All this while sharing a home with two women in a polyamorous relationship for decades. When she meets Valerie Taylor at the Mattachine meeting, they fall in love. Valerie begins writing, unlike others. Neither condemning nor condoning, but merely revealing the truths of twilight love. A story about a Chicago woman who works downtown and lives a secret lesbian life and receives a call from her best friend, a gay man, who has been arrested in a bar raid. 
Valerie writes about the need for loyalty between gay women and gay men. Because the two attempts at Mattachine chapters have failed, and the local DOB chapter is very small, in that summer of 1964, Pearl and Valerie, along with Ira Jones and Bob Basker, decide to launch the third and final Chicago Mattachine. They shall embrace uh, charity, they shall love mercy, and walk humbly with my God in trying to give the people of Chicago the best government and the best city in the United States. You can see the future pattern of Chicago. We're hopeful to close streets and residential areas and make malls out of them. We're hopeful to have every school with a playground alongside of it, and we're hopeful to provide employment and jobs for the men and women that live in our city and above all, we hope to root out poverty, we hope to eliminate the slums, and we hope to provide equality of education and opportunity for all of our people. And this we think we can achieve, and with the help of God, we will. We respect the constitutional rights and the human rights of everyone, but no one will take the law in their own hand or be law and order in Chicago as long as I'm mayor. Louie's Fun Lounge has been raided before, but now the bar is prepared. After it was blown up by an alleged gas leak, the Fun Lounge was rebuilt even larger, with no windows, no sign, and a steel door. The owner, Louie Gager, is a large Chicago-born gangster, and pretty much everyone knows what type of business he runs. But people don't feel too scared drinking at his bar, since it's rumored to be immune to the law, located between two townships. The Fun Lounge is packed with gays coming out from the city to hear the piano player named Georgia White sing her dirty ditties. Georgia often neglects to wear underwear, and she'll pull her dress up to show it all off. But Georgia is not the reason why police raid the Fun Lounge. It comes from much higher, and it's a very Chicago story. Prosecutor Richard B. Ogilvie was out to get Tony Accardo. Tony was Al Capone's bodyguard and a suspect of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They called him Joe Batters and Big Tuna. Ogilvie finally got Tony on tax evasion, just like Capone, because Tony deducted expenses for using his own sports car while selling beer. Back in 1960, two tavern owners showed up to Tony's trial to testify in his defense. One was Louis Gager of the Fun Lounge. He said Tony pulled up to the lounge in his red Mercedes in July of 56 to take an order for 25 cases of beer. A couple weeks later, Big Tuna was found guilty, but the sentence was overturned. That's a whole other story. The point is, Ogilvie was bent on revenge after Tuna slipped off the hook, so Ogilvie publicly bashed the Fun Lounge in his campaign speeches saying it was too revolting to describe in detail in public, which is a pretty lazy insult. But Ogilvy has the bar watched for three weeks, and on April 25th, 1964, a sheriff is sent in plain clothes to Louis' fun lounge. He sees 10 or 15 male couples dancing and a half a dozen embracing. 
He leaves the bar and comes back with a team of officers, bursting in and lining up to block the patrons from leaving. More cops block the back door. Customers scurry, running for the beer storage room and into Louis's apartment connected at the back of the club. Arrests are made. 109 people are taken outside to waiting buses surrounded by the press. Arrestees cover their faces as cameras flash. Cops give reporters names, addresses, and places of employment. Fun lounge guests range from 19 to 56 years old and work all sorts of different professions, including a couple CPD employees. Six hours later, everyone is finally booked and then released on a bond of $25 each after a charge of either inmates of a disorderly house or lewd and lascivious conduct. The next morning, the story hits the doorstep of every home in Chicago. The Chicago Sun-Times announces, Area teachers among 109 seized in raid on Vice Den. The Chicago Tribune prints the story on the front page. Teacher, one of eight seized in Vice raid, quits. Many of the men arrested carried powder puffs and lipsticks, and some of them wore wigs, according to Richard Kane, the sheriff's investigator. In May, a circuit court judge dismisses the charges against 99 of the Fun Lounge patrons. But it's too late for the many people whose names already appeared in the papers. One magazine in L.A. reports conviction by publicity. Not surprising, the investigator, Richard Kane, and the plainclothes sheriff are soon after convicted of being part of the same crime syndicate Louis Gager was rumored to be working for. The Tribune reports, It is a little hard to tell who are the cops and who are the robbers in this script. Richard Ogilvie is later elected governor. A wave of raids follow. 33 men seized through vice raid on bathhouse. The Lincoln Baths in Old Town are cleared out. There has been an increase recently in night spot performances by female impersonators. Many of the people arrested in these raids lose their jobs and families, and some commit suicide. Furious at the scale of the Fun Lounge raid in particular, Pearl, Valerie, Ira, and Bob go into action as the Mattachine Midwest. July 25th, 1965. The first Mattachine Midwest meeting is held in the ballroom of the Midland Hotel. More than 140 people show up. Pearl Hart speaks, so does a woman from Chicago's Belitis chapter, and so does the group's new president, Bob Basker. In our time, homosexuals have been the victims of abuses winked at by the law authorities. They have been arrested without due process of law, victimized by odious police methods such as entrapment, manhandled by the police, and deprived of legal redress when physically assaulted by gangs. Our work will help many people who will never support or understand our purpose of existence. Nevertheless, those of us here tonight have the responsibility to give of ourselves to strengthen Mattachine Midwest. It is our vehicle in this generation for advancing the rights of homosexuals. Many of the guests have never heard such an empowering message. Most of them don't even know an era like the pansy craze ever existed, right where they're sitting, 
not that long ago. Mattachine Midwest hits the ground running. They announce a 24-hour hotline, their newsletter, and a lending library. They hold a news conference announcing their founding and invite Frank Kameny of the Mattachine Society of Washington, Randy Wicker of the New York Mattachine, Clark Pollock of the Janus Society, and Larry Littlejohn of Sir to join them on the Nightline radio program and on Irv Kupsonet's very popular Chicago television program. Afterward, Frank Kameny shows a large audience of new local homophile activists some films of the recent Echo Pickets. After Jim Bradford becomes president, Mattachine Midwest only becomes more militant. Bradford openly criticizes the behavior of police through the newsletter, which reaches about 2,000 people. Valerie Taylor writes the newsletter on her dining room table, and members take stacks of it to bars and bookstores around Chicago every month to spread word of the movement. The paper becomes so well-known that police start to use it as evidence that a bar is a disorderly house of homosexuals. In that newsletter, Bradford criticizes cops for using the stop-and-quiz method, an easy way to question men suspected in gay cruising areas, and people of color walking in white neighborhoods, and women who are alone and dressed too sexually. Jim takes on police tactics like stop-and-quiz and entrapment, and he demands police meet with Mattachine. But the cops claim they have, in their words, inadequate knowledge of the topic. Which is the point Mattachine is trying to make. So, the Mattachine members start reporting specific names of officers who tried to flirt with them and entrap them in public spaces. It's time things were changed. It's time to stop running. Hold your heads up high. Be proud of your individuality. Spend your energy fighting for equality. Soon, the Chicago Daughters of Belitis chapter starts growing, and they start looking for an office. 150 women can't fit into a living room. In September 1965, Randy Wicker reports in Eastern Mattachine Magazine. Mattachine Midwest got off to a good start with a minor victory in the courtroom. In Chicago, Friday night is often roundup night for homosexuals. The police, as we hear it, arrest those they think to be homosexuals and charge them with disorderly conduct. They are held overnight or over the weekend, and when they appear in the courtroom, the cases are dismissed because the arresting officer doesn't show up to testify against them. A recent roundup resulted in one of the victims calling the offices of Mattachine Midwest, which arraigned bail bondsmen and attorneys for the victims. The next day, when the cases came to trial, there were no arresting officers on hand to testify. The attorney complained to the judge that this practice wasted the lawyer's time, the defendant's time, and the court's time. It was simply a means of harassment and crowded the already overcrowded calendars. The judge agreed, and he sent for the arresting officers. They, being night-working cops, probably were dragged out of their warm beds. One of the officers confessed that he and his brother officers never appeared in such cases. The judge not only dismissed the cases against the defendants, but reprimanded the cops. The Mattachine Midwest newsletter reports dangerous cruising areas, and your rights if you're arrested. They even have Pearl Hart's piece reprinted as its own pamphlet, called Your Rights If Arrested, and they pass them out in the bars. And on June 20th, 1966, the Chicago underground gay community rises into more mainstream press. The Chicago Daily News runs a special series by Lois Will about the mysterious gay community. 
Lois has recently won a Pulitzer for a series on hospitals neglecting to give birth control to women who can't afford it. And she's assigned this piece about the gay underworld since sex crimes are hot right now. Her editor hires a male police reporter to accompany her into the so-dangerous gay bars, but the guy dresses so square that the bars won't even let him in. He waits outside while Lois goes in for her scoop. Twilight world that's tormented. The all-too-obvious and disturbing facet of life in Chicago are that homosexuals, male deviates, are emerging openly in the city as never before. She doesn't mention lesbians at all in the four-part series, and she only visits predominantly white gay bars. But despite all that and the grabby lead, her pieces are fairly sympathetic. Big cities act like lodestars, drawing homosexuals who can't hide their deviancy in small towns. She even quotes Pearl Hart. It just doesn't make sense to go after homosexuals. Lois Will covers Mattachine Midwest and other organizations, and she describes a scene in a courtroom in which a defendant yelled at the judge, I'm happy. Are you happy? Well, I am. Don't tell me I'm sick. The reporter even reveals how the mafia abuses the gay community. She ends the pieces by suggesting homosexuals should have protection by police against blackmailers and violent people, and she says that the police have failed this community. Lois Will will later cringe at the insensitive language she includes in the pieces, but the coverage at the time is seen as a very progressive call to action for Chicago to radically change the way they treat queers. But a summer of raids continues, and the Chicago papers expose more homosexuals while Mattachine Midwest still can't get many of those same papers to print ads for their organization. Cops still cruise gay men on the street in plain clothes until someone invites them to go home with them, and then they make an arrest. The officers expose themselves in public restrooms and arrest any gay man who responds to it. They hide literally in closets, waiting to catch men in park restrooms. They listen in on flirtatious encounters in bars and shut the place down when they hear a pickup line. Valerie Taylor writes in the Mattachine Midwest newsletter, Enticement, entrapment, and harassment face the homosexual every time he steps into the street. As children, we were told that the policeman was there to protect and help us. To the homosexual citizen, such thoughts are pure nonsense. The time for shrinking violets and closet queenery is over. Lawless police is a phrase which still aptly describes Chicago's cops. The entrapments, shakedowns, brutality, and corruption continue. No one is immune. Quit buying the right-wing line about crime in the streets and wake up to your rights. Crime is as much rampant inside the police department as elsewhere. It's time things were changed. It's time to stop running. Hold your heads up high. Be proud of your individuality. Spend your energy fighting for equality. The Midwest group follows after Frank Kameny's Mattachine militancy. The Midwest president writes, Maybe we need to form a gay power block. Chicago's homosexual community once again faces the dangers of a jittery police department as election time draws near. A series of raids shook responsible homosexuals to the core. 
The Mattachine Midwest newsletter encourages people to join their fight with simple arguments, that they might need the Mattachine any day upon a random arrest, and that it's not enough to survive a broken system, we should challenge it. Valerie Taylor writes, The homosexual charged with being an inmate of a disorderly house who refuses to fight for a not guilty decision continues to put every drinking homosexual in jeopardy. On August 1st, 1966, Mattachine Midwest calls for a demonstration outside the Chicago Sun-Times and the Daily News. Why on October 1st? October 1st, 1966 is a day of nationwide efforts sponsored by 22 organizations across the country which are active in the homophile movement. Valerie Taylor writes, Why at the Sun-Times and Daily News? Chicago Daily News and Sun-Times provided a good example of the misunderstandings society has about homosexuals. Madison Midwest submitted an ad to them for publication today. The ad would have drawn attention to October 1st. The newspapers refused the ad, stating that while homosexuality might be fit for news coverage, it was not fit for their advertising pages. We feel the papers missed the point. But, out of squeamishness, the Sun-Times and Daily News rejected our ad. We therefore take this limited means of publicizing that fact. Such a militant Midwest movement has its conservative backlash, of course. The following year, 1967, a 50-year-old closeted pastor briefly takes the reins of Mattachine Midwest. He puts a patriotic bald eagle over his column in the newsletter and writes printed in the USA on the cover page. The whole newsletter is printed entirely in caps with his own rhetoric pushed. He says to his fellow homophiles that homosexuals want to create the fruity fruit world. They are disturbed. Mattachine Midwest members begin holding their meetings in secret while this pastor holds control for 16 months. Their activism basically stops. The pastor rants in the newsletter about the people he calls radicals on CBS, like Jack Nichols. I am speaking to the less masculine members of the group who seem to pride themselves in the public display of pseudo-femininity. Gay people are not so bad to be with, except for the femmies. Fortunately... In May 1968, Jim Bradford is voted back in as president, and Valerie Taylor returns as editor, just in time for Chicago to pull the focus of the world. West of Michigan Avenue, in the former Tower Town, a new gay-owned restaurant and bar called The Trip has become a new hotspot. Midday lunches are packed with upscale shoppers on the first floor, and after-dinner cabarets fill the space on the second floor. Up on the third, people play pool and pinball. On Sunday nights, The Trip is a private club, with membership cards required. This neighborhood still becomes very gay at night when all the heteros leave work and the shops and head home. In January 1968, 
a plainclothes officer slips into the trip on a gay night. How'd this cop get into a members-only club? During a previous unrelated arrest, he illegally stole a membership card to the trip from someone he was arresting. Now inside the club, he observes members of the same sex dancing together. The trip is raided. Thirteen patrons are charged with public indecency and soliciting for prostitution. The Tribune reports, More than 140 men, including prominent professors, businessmen, and several clergymen, were questioned by police last night after a raid on a reputed private club for homosexuals on the near north side. The charges are dismissed in March. And although they lose some straight lunchtime business because of the bad publicity, the trip stays open. Until two months later, May 1968. This time, two undercover cops go in, but they only arrest one patron and one employee. But more importantly, they get the local liquor authorities to issue an emergency closing order to revoke the bar's liquor license. Just as Mayor Daly strategized, if the bar wants to appeal this, it will drag on for months until they run out of money to keep the building. But the gay owners, Ralph Johnston and Dean Kohlberg, are determined to stay open. No gay bar has ever challenged this law before, but they hire an attorney and prepare to take the case to the Illinois Supreme Court. The trip will remain closed until their case is heard. In the meantime, the trip will host Mattachine Midwest's monthly public meetings. They'll also receive a request to host a rather large gay meeting. The North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, NACO, will bring leaders such as Barbara Giddings, Frank Kameny, and Shirley Willer to hold their multi-organization national homophile event inside the trip. As the trip prepares, gay bars shut down all over Chicago, voluntarily. Queer business owners are worried that the mayor and the police will be sweeping through the city again as mobs of visitors arrive and the eyes of the world are on Chicago for the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Next week, on Episode 9, Mattachine Millennia. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is very special to me. As a Chicagoan since 2010, this city's history was really where I got interested in queer history, thanks to Albert Williams, my teacher and friend and voice of Frank Kameny. I had actually briefly left Chicago and moved back here to produce this podcast, and I am so grateful for everything this city has given to me. I'd like to dedicate this episode to my dearest Chicago Judies, especially Albert Williams, Salvio Gatto, Jen Dentel of the Gerber Heart, Connor Good, who loves Chicago queer history as deeply as I do, and Jen Freitag, who worked tirelessly with me on North Halstead as co-workers and as activists. You have heard all of these lovely folks' voices on the podcast, and I am so grateful that they are a part of it. If you live in Chicago, please get in touch with your alder person and ask them to support ECPS, Empowering Communities for Public Safety. 
Yes, that means defund the police and reallocate money to more effective resources in the community. And it will create democratic police accountability. Follow the Chicago Alliance Carper now and get more info at bit.ly slash support ECPS. Links are in the episode notes. If you like Queer Serial, please give her a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help the show reach new listeners. I mean it. It totally helps, and it only takes you a few seconds. Thank you so much. You can also follow the show at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode, including all sorts of 20th century Chicago history. The Dill Pickle Club, Eddie Yen's erotic art, photos from the raids. You don't even need an Instagram to see it all. Just go to Instagram.com slash Queer Serial on your desktop. Thanks to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and upcoming projects on their way. If you want to support the show, join my Patreon at patreon.com slash queercereal for lots of bonus content or head over to queercereal.com slash donate. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives, named in honor of Henry Gerber and Pearl Hart of Chicago. Check out QueerSerial.com for more resources. A couple that were particularly helpful during this episode were Timothy Stewart Winter's Queer Clout, all about Chicago queer politics, and also The Boys of Fairy Town by Jim Elledge. That book is packed with very hot late 19th, early 20th century queer Chicago stories. I barely got to scratch the surface. Definitely recommend The Boys of Fairy Town. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media or email me at queerserial at gmail.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors. The New York Times reporter in the previous mini-episode was played by the lovely Paula Harrington, and Dick Leish was played by Evan Kepnick. In today's episode, cops were played by Mike Lysak and Mike Kanish. Tiny Davis and Pearl Hart were played by Tandria Young, Mayor Daly by John Roth, Valerie Taylor by Marissa Barbara Clayton, Pulp Women, My Faves by Courtney Tesh. The searching novel of a lonely young wife faced with the temptations of unnatural love. Jet Magazine readers by Brian Rowe and Zoya Barker. Gay man pretending to look for his poodle, a true story, played by Jacob Trish Wallace. It ran down the alley and I'm trying to find it. Did you see it? Cop by Brian Rowe, Lieutenant Thomas Kernan by Julian Hall, Mattachine Midwest President Bob Basker, also by Jacob Wallace, the next Midwest President Jim Bradford by Andrew Casey, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, Lois Will by my granny Faye Camp. Male deviants are emerging openly in the city as never before. Big cities act like lodestars. Her favorite word, lodestars. Lodestars. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> lodestars. Okay. And the closeted pastor by my gramps, Steve Camp. The fruity fruit world. They are disturbed. Great. Let's go to the next one. That's so fun. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. Back next week. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.